You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I'm interested in being right for a thousand percent gain. And being right for a thousand percent gain involves compounding. It involves not merely a yes answer, but a sequence of two or three or four yes answers. And 2023 worked for me because of the allocation decisions I made in 2021. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers, chatting today with one of the show's most favorite guests, Rick Roll of Rule Investment Media. Rick, thanks for coming back on to the show. And it's often said that mines are made, not found. But I was wondering if there's some truth, to, if we could flip that around and say mines are found, not made. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think every dictum, every one size fits all premises false. Uh, mines are found and mines are made. Uh, there are periods of time when there is an excess of exploration success and you need, the t you need the teams to bring them forward and build them. There are other times, such as now, where we have underinvested in exploration for long enough that you need to shift back to the front end of the risk curve. So you're right. Mines are made, but mines are first found. So going back to a couple of years ago when you talked about the uh, mine, the year of exploration stocks, and I did load up on some exploration stocks. I've sold many of them, honestly, for 50 to 80% losses, a lot of them, you know, just moving the portfolio around to X loss selling. When do we see that shift, Rick? It's so hard to raise capital, even for good projects. When do we see the shift? Uh, well, I would argue that it isn't difficult to raise capital. Uh, most of the private placements that I participated in the last eight, 12 months have been oversubscribed, and mostly I've been cut back. It's tough for the lame, the halt, and the blind to raise capital, uh, and I think that's a very good sign. There are probably 1,200 companies in the world purport to be in the exploration business that are in the lifestyle business. Unfortunately, they're cockroaches. They're very difficult to kill. Uh, I think two or three more years of capital discipline would be very good for the exploration business because it would take the number of aspirants from 1,200 down to 150 and eliminate 80% of the GNA, which is the cancer of the sector. I noticed as an example, Snowline, which is, you know, uh, evidence of exploration success, has had five straight uh, oversubscribed uh, financings. Uh, I, I think Reunion will have a financing very soon. They have a nice discovery in Guyana. Uh, I'm almost certain to get cut back on my subscription. So I would argue that there is a shortage of dumb money which is the money the, that the industry prefers. Uh, no shortage of smart money. Okay. So in jurisdictions in Canada that allow for flow-through dollars, which can often be easier to raise for executives, does that tend to make executives that are lazy, maybe more prone to a lifestyle company, and be maybe a little lax on marketing their company? Well, it certainly makes them more attracted to Canada. Canada attracts more than a share of exploration activity relative to its geological prospectivity or relative to its intellectual capital. Canada is blessed with having a financial infrastructure and laws that are geared to capital raising. So capital uh, Canada enjoys a larger market share with regards to exploration funding than it should. Uh, it doesn't mean that if an opportunity is offered up to an individual which is more attractive in Canada because of the benefit to him or her as a consequence of tax savings that they shouldn't contribute to the silver funding. It just means that the probability of exploration success relative to the dollars spent in Canada is lower. When it comes to deposits, uh, there's a discovery. It's advancing along the development. 
and they get to the preliminary economic assessment stage, the PEA stage, they're allowed to include inferred, which are less certain for those that don't know the term, less certain mineral resource there. Do you think it's a good or bad thing that they're allowed to include the inferred resources in a PEA? I think it's a very good thing. Uh, I think, unfortunately, most investors don't know the difference between (laughs) the various classes uh, of reserve and resource. But I think the fact that the companies are allowed to disclose the full intent of mineralization means that an investor that takes time to educate himself or herself has a much more inclusive document with the 43101. Uh, Is the proven important? Yes. Is the probable important? Is the inferred uh, important? Is the prayed for important? Yes. Uh, Important to the extent that the investor has taken the time to educate himself or herself as to what those terms mean, and has devoted the time and treasure necessary to probabilistically assign value to each category of reserve and resource. More disclosure is always better than less, including bullish disclosure. So development companies that are progressing from a preliminary economic assessment to a pre-fees to a feasibility study, if they are continually using the word optimization and reissuing studies that are optimized, does that mean that it's more likely to fail? Because some associate the word with optimization with promotion. Again, uh, did optimization take place someplace other than the headline of a press release? Uh, I am a large shareholder uh, in an Australian company called Meteoric, which has discovered an enormous rare earths deposit in Malawi. They are constantly optimizing the process by which they will mine the deposit because the deposit is, you know, there's there's gradation in the deposit. They are constantly uh, optimizing the metallurgy uh, around recovery. This optimization isn't taking place for no money as a consequence of changing the spelling of a word in the press release. Uh, There are millions of dollars being spent increasing the understanding of the ore body, how it might be mined and how it might be processed. This is real optimization. People look, as they listen to interviews like this, for very simplistic one-size-fits-all statements. Inferred is bad. Optimization is bad. Gold is good. Early stage is bad. Late stage is good. That's all bullshit. Uh, the truth is that there is no one-size-fits-all. Just as the same as there is no recommendation of a company that's suitable to all investors. If there's 8 billion prospective investors in the world, there's 8 billion uh, perspectives around any individual issue. Uh, That's unfortunate. It means that you have to work, you have to optimize, you have to pick and choose, which is not what most people want. Rick, when I was trying to learn this sector before I started this show, in order to talk to smart people like yourself and learn further... I memorized a lot of Rick Rulisms, so Rick's proverbs. So if you hear your own proverbs spoken back to you, could you pick at those and find nuances and objective parts of it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, you're, you're suggesting, uh, I, I mean, the suggestion that what my nuances are perfect suggests that as an investor, I'm perfect. I've known myself for 50 years, and I know that not to be true. <laughs> I, I have learned that uh in investor education having a slogan uh that allows people to understand 80 percent of the subject 
uh, with a slogan is a wonderful way to teach. When I say contrarian or victim, the choice is yours. I frame the subject in a way that allows people to pay attention to the lecture that I give after that and allows them to retain the important part of the lecture very easily. That's what a slogan is for. And then they have to take that truth and apply it and get beat up a little in the school of hard knocks and figure and out even yeah and remember they're not going to re- they're not going to remember every part of the contrarian or victim lecture they're going to remember the headline and they're hopefully going to remember enough of it that they can be a contrarian rather than a victim being a contrarian as you know is a difficult thing uh, you're standing against narrative and it's easy to convict to conflate narrative with fact Rick, on that point, you've talked about when price is not indicative of value, but when price goes down, investors freak out, and I get emails, especially when it's a company featured on this show, and my question is always, well, have you talked to management and have you assessed, because I learned this from Rick Rule, (laughs) did the value proposition change? Is something fundamentally wrong or is the share price selling off for other reasons? Now, in that situation, if a CEO is quiet and the share price is selling off, you're a large shareholder of that company. What are you going to do? Why? Are you going to expect the executive to engage more? No. Uh, I mean, I mean, I've, I might expect it. I might prefer it. Uh, but I've learned that my preferences matter to me. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I have now participated in, I think, 14 Ross Beatty companies. 13 of them delivered 10 baggers over the course of my ownership. Every one of the 10 baggers required at least five years. And every one of them exposed me to a 50% share price decline in the stock. Uh, While I might have preferred that Ross Beatty did a few things differently, the idea that I have much to teach Ross Beatty after after he delivered me 13 10 baggers out of 14 starts is fairly disingenuous. The the fault, if there is a fault, is me. Uh, Now, mercifully for Ross Beatty, through most of those, when I experienced the decline, I bought a lot of stock. Uh, Equinox, uh, while Ross Beatty doesn't run it, uh, he is the largest shareholder, and I would suggest to you that the people who run it uh, listen to him uh, when he expresses himself, which he does very forcefully, so I would suspect he's the power behind the, the throne. That stock has declined in the last 18 months by more than 50%. It's declined for three reasons. They deferred sustaining capital investments that they should have made. They experienced political and operational risk in Me- West Mexico, where that should be the expectation. And importantly, uh, they... Uh, embarked on a $1.2 billion capital project in northern Canada in a terrain where almost every recent activity has gone uh, over budget and behind time. The expectation became success. I believe that the market's expectation with with regards to the Greenstone project is wrong. I believe that they will complete that project on time, on budget. I believe they will obtain nameplate capacity. The fact that I'm alone in that expectation is tempered by virtue of the fact that when I ask people why they're dis- 
why they're discouraged by Equinox. They mention the share price and they don't know anything about Greenstone at all. In other words, I'm competing against the opinion of 10,000 people that haven't spent enough time to form an opinion as to valuation. What am I doing? Well, fairly clearly, I'm buying stock. Rick, would you invest in a developer that relies on ore sorting technology to be economic? Not if I didn't understand the ore sorting technology, uh, which by now almost certainly means no, because I don't understand very much about ore sorting technology. Uh, it could be shown to me that the ore sorting technology was appropriate to the task at hand and that the person who was applying the ore sorting technology had applied it successfully himself or herself in the past. In other words, where the expertise of the people employing the technology had been demonstrated on the same type of ore body with the same type of technology, I could be convinced. That hasn't happened to me yet. I'm very, very, very concerned about my own weakness. I have the power of my opinion where I have faith in my opinion. That is to say, where I think I have enough, I have enough experience that I allow myself to form an opinion. Some of the mistakes of 10 years ago in the sector, uh, Red Eagle Mining, Rubicon, they tried to bring deposits online based just on a PEA. Do you think we'll see those mistakes again in this cycle when things get hyped up? Yep. Absolutely positively. When investors, including institutional investors, uh, get inspired by fear of missing out, the investment bankers are absolutely willing to steal their money for a fee. Absolutely. And as investors get more positive and forget the lessons that they learned partially by fear of missing out, absolutely positively greed and stupidity will reign supreme again. That's why the phrase contrarian versus victim, uh, when the whole world is attracted to a certain sector, the sector gets sloppy and the return on capital employed always decreases. So a developer goes through a many year stage to get to the feasibility study. They issue the feasibility study. I've looked at some of them. I don't understand them, but they're 400 pages, 500 pages long. Now, if you get your PhD, you have to defend your thesis, your dissertation before they give you the degree. Do you think it would be helpful for companies to have to defend their feasibility study to their peers before it's issued? Or functionally, is it just like the majors that vet these projects are the ones who, you know, vet the dissertation, so to speak? I hope over the next 10 years that a class of consultants emerges that investors can pay to do this for on a subscription basis. But right now, investors rely on the uh, investment banks, which is silly. That's relying on the fox to guard the hen house. The investment bank's client is the issuer, not the investor. <clears throat> I personally pay a lot of money to consultants. I pay for geological consultants. I pay for engineering consultants. I pay to have feasibility studies torn apart, at least for that part of it, which I can't tear apart. Uh, it is not uncommon for me at all if I'm going to invest a million or two million dollars in a private placement to spend thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars information gathering uh, from sources of information that are loyal to me and, by the way, unique to me. I don't allow them to share. The benefit of that with investors who, unlike myself, didn't pay for it. Uh, and I think that more investors uh, will have to do this. Or, or rather, I think more investors should do this.
And will you go for competing opinions when you're trying to vet something? Will you seek out an alternative opinion to the maybe the first opinion that comes in through a consultant? Uh, it depends. If I think my consultant is the best consultant available to me relative to the task at hand, I don't feel the need to. Uh, I remember very well uh, attending several business meetings presided over by Lucas Lundin, where the Lundin family, rest in peace, Lucas, where the Lundin family was trying to make an investment decision. And Lucas would say, okay, we're 15 hours into this. We know everything that we are ever going to know in the period of time that's necessary to make the decision. Now, in the next five minutes, we're going to make a decision. And if it's wrong, we're going to fix it. There is something called paralysis by analysis. Uh, I know two or three geological consultants who are on a first-name basis with tertiary volcanic accreted terrain in the Cordillera and porphyry deposits and epithermal gold deposits. And if I get the considered opinion of one of those about an exploration project that is in the, in the terrain that he is an expert on, I'm good. Doesn't mean I'm right. What it means is that I have outcompeted my peers to the extent that I'm able to do it. Uh, and I believe that it is probable that I know enough to make the investment and that I know more about the investment than 99% of the people who are going to make it. You need to know, uh, Bill, in exploration, that the probability is that you make a bad decision. What that means is that you only should make investments where the size of the prize is substantial enough that the win that you enjoy on your successful speculations can amortize your unsuccessful speculations. I have zero interest in a speculation which could result in a double. Uh, if I'm not making a, a, a speculative bet, where my upside is fivefold or tenfold, I have zero interest because the upside on a double doesn't amortize for failures, which is what I expect in the course of a successful effort. Rick, I had a seasoned resource investor on the show recently, and he does not believe in position sizing upfront. So if you have 10 stocks in your portfolio, you're, you don't go overweighted in one of them because you truly don't know in junior resource stocks which one is going to outperform. However, you can allow the overweighting once one, one of them rises to the top while three of them fail completely. What do you think of that approach? And do you ever overweight up front before you know if it's going to be successful or not? I absolutely upweight. I absolutely overweight up front. Uh, I overweight by the size of the prize and I, uh, I overweight by my experience with the jockey. Uh, if Ross Beatty were to come to me at age 72 and say, Hey Rick, look what I got. I'm going again. I'm in, you know, I'm in. There are guys who have been serially successful. Now, if Ross Beatty came to me and he said, uh, you know, I'm concerned about aging and I'm going to invest in this anti-aging antioxidant technology. Ross has never enjoyed any success in that. He's interested in it because he's old. I'm not going to give him a nickel. 
But if Ross Beatty has a, a, a greenfield idea, which he has a very fertile mind for, and says, I'm going to build a company around this theme, I'm going to overweight. But you've been around for decades. If we're facing a recession and a credit crunch, how do you manage your junior resource portfolio through that? I don't. Uh, I manage my cash holdings before it gets to juniors. Uh, I'm overweight cash. Now, I pretend that that's strategic. I pretend I'm doing it to give me powder uh, to take advantage of the failings of others. The truth is I'm 70 years of age, almost 71 uh, years of age. Uh, <laughs> some of it has to do with the fact that I'm concerned about the economic outlook and, and having a lot of cash, like having a lot of gold, helps me sleep nights. Uh, and at age 70, sleeping nights is a real economic benefit, or at least a real psychological benefit. Uh, I, I have an amount of money, uh, which for me is large, that I speculate with because I enjoy speculating. Uh, I, I like it more than almost anything else I can think of doing. Uh, and I'm good at it inside my sector. Uh, taking a 30% loss on a speculation has absolutely no impact on me psychologically. It's the price I pay for success. And I speculate with a range of financial ex uh, uh, assets that I can afford to lose all of. My circumstance is different than many of your listeners. I, when I was still a money manager and a stockbroker, managed money for a family that had made their money in oil and gas, in the oil and gas business, but they weren't the ones who'd made the money. So they didn't have necessarily the education to take risks, although they had access to the expertise to take risks. They certainly had the financial wherewithal to take risks. They were billionaires. But the psychological impact of a loss was so hard on them that it materially impacted their sense of well-being. I, I think that the essence of wealth is your sense of well-being. And so I wouldn't allow these people to participate, to uh, speculate, because although they had access to expertise and although they could afford the financial risk, the psychological impact uh, of loss was so devastating to them uh, that there was no amount of money that I could make them which could overcome the trauma of the expected periodic losses. Those people shouldn't speculate. So they made their money in oil and gas. I think I've heard you say you're bullish oil and gas and you like, no, you're Huge, not bullish? Hugely bullish oil and oh, gas. Exactly. I thought I hear that. Hugely bullish oil and gas. Could you could you elaborate in, uh, what about Canadian oil stocks? Uh, I, I'm particularly attracted to the Canadian oil stocks because the risk is so visible. The risk is the Laurentian elite. Uh, the risk is the liberals, the NDP and Trudeau. So I understand what's wrong. If you're understanding what's wrong, you can discount for it. So let's look at oil and gas before we get down to Canada. Let's look at a couple of facts. Uh, in 40 years, we've invested, we, I mean our species, $5 trillion, trillion, in alternative energies. The big thinkers say alternative energies are going to put carbon-based energy out of business in 2032. In 40 years, with $5 trillion, we've reduced the market share of fossil fuels from 82% all the way down to 81%. That's one fact. There are a billion people on Earth, Bill, who have no access to electricity. There are another 2 billion people on Earth who have access to intermittent or unaffordable electricity. Those people point out that measuring carbon 
should be done on a per capita basis, not on a national basis, which is to say that if we're going to get carbon neutral, it's all going to be done in the Western world. And you are going to have to be comfortable paying 20 or $25 a gallon for gas and 50 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, which you are not going to do. You are simply not going to do it. The way the oil and gas business is structured now, uh, the financial community, or at least uh, the regulatory community, wants you to assume that peak oil consumption occurs in 2032, and your net value calculations have no terminal value. That's ridiculous. Peak oil consumption occurs in 2065, which means that when you ex when you uh, exhaust the net present value of uh, proved developed producing assets at a 10% discount, your terminal value is, ex is, is the same as your starting value. But it gets better. Because of the dictums of the big thinker, uh, the oil industry as a whole isn't investing sufficient capital in sustaining capital to maintain their production, which means that absent big increases in investment, which aren't occurring, supplies tighten and uh, and prices go up. You have in there, however, a subset of companies that are bucking the trend. They're investing enough money in sustaining capital that they will maintain production, even as other people's production falls. These people have the best of all worlds. Uh, I guess the third uh, function that people need to look at is the price arbitrage between North American natural gas and international fossil fuel consumption on a BTU equivalent basis. North American natural gas prices are a quarter of what the energy equivalent price of fuels are landed in Asia and Europe. The infrastructure is being built to address this market imbalance right now. Investing at the very top line in companies like ExxonMobil which made a superb acquisition yesterday and will be punished for it in the market. Wonderful asset allocators investing uh, enough sustaining capital uh, that when Pemex and Pedevesa go out of business, they'll pick up the slack is a good thing to do for an investor, particularly income-oriented investor. Somebody who wants to be a little riskier and take the Trudeau risk could invest in a package of Canadian uh, equities. The ones that are making substantial uh sustaining capital investments, the ones that are efficient allocators of pr uh, production, uh, the ones that have good assets. Uh, names like uh, Arc Petroleum, Freehold Royalty, Pato, Birchcliff, Tourmaline, wonderful companies making sustaining capital investments, generating so much cash that they can buy back stock and increase their dividends, paying down their net debt to zero. And then a couple special situations, uh, American natural gas, Devon in the U.S. South and Southwest, and Equitable in the Marcellus. Five-year plays for the equalization of U.S. natural gas prices to global uh, hydrocarbon prices. Uh, this isn't the sort of thing for somebody who has trauma holding stock over a long weekend. It would be easy to see the oil price go from $85 down to $65 before you saw it rebound to $110 or $120. Uh, but for investors who want a theme where the outcome is inevitable, uh, uh, North American hydrocarbons is absolutely a no-brainer. Ironically, 
ironically, more a no-brainer because of Trudeau and Biden. The worst enemies are the best promoters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you think about the strategic petroleum reserve? Are we ever going to fill it, especially before an election? Uh, I, I have no idea. Understand, it's the SPR is really strategic political reserve. Exactly. <laughs> Biden had to sell it off to keep gas prices reasonable during the interim election. Now, with the industry under-investing in sustaining capital uh, and the prices of oil uh, on a bicycle, provided he doesn't get the benefit of a recession to lower oil prices, refilling that petroleum reserve is going to be very, very, very difficult to do politically. If you sell a reserve and then you replace it at higher prices, uh, people will notice that arbitrage. Do you think electricity is one of the commodities that we can be bo most bullish on over the next decade? Yeah. I, I, well, I don't, I don't know about most bullish on, but I think you have to be bullish. There's a billion people on earth who want it who don't have it. If you look at our species track record over the last 40 years, raising the material living standards of the poorest of the poor, we've done a great job. A great job. And I think that continues. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely. I'm not as attracted to electricity in the way that the big thinkers are. I don't think that the increase in electricity is all about electric vehicles, although I think that they'll be important. But I think that as we develop better technologies for distributing and storing electricity and for utilizing electricity, I mean, it's wonderful stuff. You know, even the big thinkers, when they walk into a room, and even Greta, when she walks into a room, hits the switch, she wants the lights to go on, you know? I mean, she wouldn't be able to carpet us if she didn't have electric media. So even Greta, while she wants you to live worse, wants to live better itself. Uh, your listeners need to understand that these big thinkers uh, who all convene in Davos and tell us to drive less, fly a thousand private jets to get there. Uh, so I, I'm attracted to alternative energies. I'm attracted to uranium. I'm attracted to coal. I'm attracted to all of it. There are 8 billion people on Earth doing what people do, which means there's going to be more of us tomorrow than there were today. And we want to raise our living standards, and we are raising our living standards, and good living standards are energy intensive. Rick, so over the last year, I had never invested in a solar company, but now I have substantial investments in solar and decentralized energy and microgrids. And so I have nice investments in oil and gas, and I have it also in renewable energies and, and decentralized energy. And some people say, well, you have to choose either or. At least that seems like the mindset they talk from. But I even think that the government's per pushing certain renewables is making it a more bullish case <laughs> on the supply side for my oil and gas investments. Well, you know, uh, certainly, while arguably it's immoral to take money from the government, meaning that you're taking, you're receiving stolen property. I understand perfectly why you would want to invest in a sector where the government's lowering your cost of capital. I get that. I've invested in solar. Uh, I've invested in solar where the government decided to steal from the ratepayers. Uh, the government will allow utilities to pay seven cents an hour for coal, and they'll force the utility to pay 14 cents an hour for solar. I actually invested in solar in Toronto where the sun doesn't shine because the Ontario provincial government, in their idiocy, had an 85-cent feed-in tariff for solar. They made it impossible to lose money. 
and they forced a credit consumer, Ontario Power, to guarantee to pay me for what I produced. In other words, the government of Ontario decided to pay me what was in effect a guaranteed 12% return to steal from the voters and to steal from the taxpayers. In that circumstance, you're almost forced to say yes. So there's that, but there's also the economics that are improving too on the renewable side. For example, part of my due diligence was meeting with some business owners who had seven-figure systems installed on their rooftops, and these were shrewd guys, and they installed their decentralized system purely for economics sake. So environmental sake concern was second, it was economics for them. Certainly to the extent that Costco installs a solar gathering system on a four-acre store in Calexico, California, where your energy usage corresponds with when the sun shines, is a very good deal. It doesn't seem to be a good enough deal for the big thinkers. So after all that happens, Governor Gruesome, the guy who runs the state of California, uh, gives them big subsidies too. One would be stupid if the same people who victimize you, which is to say uh, Governor Gruesome, uh, when they are preparing to put back more money in the left pocket than they extracted from the right pocket, in self-defense, although it's immoral, you have to say yes, particularly if you're managing other people's money, where your interpretation of morality shouldn't impact your willingness to make your clients money. I'm, I'm, I, I'm less familiar, perhaps, with those technologies than you are. And I am less able myself to understand the future impact of that technology unsubsidized. The only uh, alternative energies that I've been willing to invest in unsubsidized were ones that I understood, like geothermal. That, explore, that understanding came at a real cost to me. Uh, and low-head hydro, where my tuition was uh, somewhat less expensive. Uh, my investments in wind and solar were always reliant on stealing both from the taxpayer and from the ratepayer. Rick, my final question for today, what was the biggest mistake you made in 2023 as a resource investor, or what would you do differently? I wouldn't do anything differently. Uh, 2023 was pretty good to me. Uh, ironically, uh, I was overweight uranium that worked and I was overweight a couple de developers, uh, in particular Emerald Resources in Australia, which worked in spades. So 2023 was a pretty good year for me. Uh, did I take losses? Yeah, absolutely. The catastrophic losses in some names that always happens. Uh, I have some other names that have declined where I believe the declines are, uh, uh, temporary. Uh, I'm thinking of names like uh, Sovereign, uh, Bellevue, uh, Equinox. You know that that happens. Uh, I, I it, it's ironic. You know when I was younger, particularly much younger in my twenties, the six months seemed to be an eternity because I hadn't gone through too many six month periods. Now that I'm seventy, I think in five year terms. It's not that I wouldn't prefer to get paid quicker. It's that I've learned that five years is the amount of time it takes, irrespective of my preference. I've learned that my preference doesn't matter, even to me. And so when people ask me about 2023, other than from an educational perspective, that time frame has no meaning to me. Uh, because it has no meaning. It has meaning if you're a trader. 
Uh, I'm not. I'm not particularly interested in front-running some news for an 11% gain. I'm interested in being right for a 1,000% gain. And being right for a 1,000% gain involves compounding. It involves not merely a yes answer, but a sequence of two or three or four yes answers. And 2023 worked for me because of the allocation decisions I made in 2021. So you're reaping the rewards of decisions you made two years ago. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Not, not six weeks ago. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. A anything with rural investment media we should note before uh, we sign off here? Well, certainly we have an upcoming royalty and streaming bootcamp. Royalty and streaming is, I think, the single best part as a business of the extractive industry. In fact, a portfolio could be built in oil and gas and mining out of royalty and streaming companies only. But most people don't know very much about royalty and streaming. It's just like when we had the uranium boot camp, most people didn't know very much about uranium. We will take between eight and, eight and nine hours of your time one day, but give you access to the material for a year and allow you to understand enough about royalty and streaming that you can make royalty and streaming investments and speculations rationally. We'll charge you $99 to do that. $99 is a very small price to pay to be armed with the knowledge that will allow you to be a successful investor for two or three decades. But if you didn't learn enough for that $99 and you tell me that you didn't think it was worth your $99, I'll give you the $99 back. So your financial risk is in fact my risk. I also, as you know, uh, will happily engage in conversations uh, with people around their portfolios. Go to Rural Investment Media, list your natural resource stocks portfolios, Please no crypto, please no tech stocks, please no pot stocks, natural resource stocks only. I'll rank them for free, and I'll comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on today's show, Rick, and I'll touch base with you in a few months. Thanks for the opportunity, Bill. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.